0: Welcome to The Wonderful World of Dance, bringing you exclusive interviews with top dancers and choreographers and reviews of the world's best companies across the globe. You can find lots more on our website at thewonderfulworldofdance.com. Hi, this is Savannah Saunders from The Wonderful World of Dance and today I am truly honoured to introduce Richard Alston, the critically acclaimed award-winning choreographer and artistic director of the renowned Richard Alston Dance Company. Richard has been a pioneer of contemporary dance, one of the most important choreographers and a stalwart in the UK and European dance scene for the last five decades. And his contribution to dance has been recognised by the Queen who knighted him for his services to the art. After 26 years, Richard Austin Dance Company is coming to an end, sadly, and the company's farewell tour, tour, entitled The Final Edition, is heading to London, Sadler's Wells, in March. This gives an opportunity for his devoted audiences to come and say farewell and to bid the company that they have loved and grown up over the years a final last hurrah. This farewell tour is a defining moment for the British dance scene as Richard looks to the next stage of his career that builds upon his body of work that includes almost more than 150 works, which is extraordinary. So, I'm so pleased to welcome Sir Richard Alston. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. It is lovely to be actually here in your home at The Place. Yes. In London. Yes. And what you won't be able to see people who are listening and and viewing is on the walls, we are surrounded by posters of performances past, which gives quite an interesting visual catalogue of some of the recent years. But with such an esteemed career we have almost too much to discuss so let's start at the beginning you trained with the london contemporary dance school which is obviously the institution here at the, the place yes so you are back home yes in many ways yes
1: that's how it feels does it yes and i feel like i've never left this building actually <laughs> I had a a brief stint with Rombert and two years in America, but otherwise I've been here since 1968.
0: You must feel like either a part of the furniture or the the leading masthead of of the building. How how does it feel for you?
1: Um, uh, It's a good feeling to feel that I know probably more than anyone else in this building, about its history and about the way the, de- the building developed and the extraordinary people who've been here over the years, going right back to my, my early, early training. So it's going to be strange in, in a more or less a week's time when suddenly I don't belong here. And um, part of me is excited about that because it's going to be, uh, I have to look for something new I don't want to stop choreographing, I don't want to sit at home and and vegetate, uh, um, and I believe very strongly in mature artists, and I feel I've only recently become mature, <laughs> so I know I want to go on, and uh, I'm going to find ways of doing that, either here or overseas or wherever. So in that sense, that's very exciting, but it's a very strange pull to be leaving this building, which I've I've been walking into this building, you know, from more or less the same part of London uh, for, for five decades.
0: And do you remember what it was like the first time that you walked into this building? And could you have imagined that you would spend the next five decades?
1: No, I would never have imagined that. I can remember it very clearly. Robin had found this building. Robin Hard, who was the founder of the Contemporary Dance Trust. And he brought me and Sue Siobhan Davis, on a rainy afternoon we'd finished classes at the studios where we were off oxford street and he said have you got a lecture now or are you free and i said we're free and he said i want you to see something and he brought us here and um, it was an old drill hall and uh, the theater and what is now the bar were all one big hall it hadn't been used for a long time it had always been hard out for parties so there were buckets to catch the rain and rather forlorn deflated balloons in the rafters but you could see the potential of it and uh, robin also who was a really remarkable man who had tragically lost his legs they were blown off on the last day of the second world war but he still had a very strong feeling for things military And so he was thrilled that this building was the home of the Artists Rifles so that uh, artists such as Wilfred Owen were in the the Artists Rifles. And that connection meant a lot to Robin. And he brought us in here and we walked around and we saw the Rifle Range, where the cafe is now. And when Bob came here, Bob Cohan, who, who was the first Artistic Director, he came with all his knowledge from the Martha Graham Company and said, the floors have to be Canadian maple, and then there you are, they had to be, and the sprung floors were laid all through the building. And it was very raw, not really finished when the students first came in, but very, very exciting. New things are very, very exciting. I was always fascinated reading about the the early days of Brombeil, and I felt that I'd suddenly found a new version of that. And there was a tremendous intensity, Nobody really knew what they were doing apart from Bob. And uh, it was the most extraordinary time. We were just thinking about it early this week because they've uh, produced a book of 50 years of London School of Contemporary Dance. And um, so we were, we were not being nostalgic, but remembering how exciting it was. Of course it's exciting now, but it's something quite different. It's evolved, it's developed, all sorts of new ideas coming in. Um, But I think in those days, right at the beginning, it was rather wonderful that we didn't know what the hell we were doing, so we were open to anything.
0: There's something nice about um, not having any preconceived ideas. Yes, absolutely. No boundaries. Yes.
1: We knew, you know, at that time, Robin had been completely uh, Uh, enthralled by Martha Graham and her dance language and her dance training Um, so that was what came here first of all in those days before other things were added and it all became more complicated Um, and uh, apart from that you're quite right Uh, Robin also had a very strong feeling for the avant-garde and the eccentric and he invited all sorts of odd people in here to do things the first performances in this building were carried out all the way through the building, and the audience had to walk around. And um, that, was the, that was his quirky side, which I always enjoyed a lot.
0: I remember, as you mentioned, Rombert, I, I recall going to a performance there when they first moved into their new uh, home. And they had a, a performance where you had to follow the dancers across the building, that Right. that reminds me of that, right. which is very interesting, yes. how that lineage yes. continues to yes. yes. very interesting, but your training also includes spending a couple of years with Merce Cunningham, tell me about that time.
1: Okay, uh, when I finished my training here, uh, Robin um, applied for a grant for me because he thought it would be good if I went to New York, uh, but I said no I don't want to go to New York, I have reasons for staying here, and uh, when you're that young, you're very stubborn. So (laughs) I I was given this thing called a Gulbenkian Dance Award. uh, uh, And with it, I formed this small group called Strider. So we danced all over the country in all sorts of strange venues, like art galleries and marketplaces and what have you. We were what would nowadays be called site-specific. And we experimented and we had a lot of fun. And then I realized after the three years that I needed to learn more. I, there was, there was um, my knowledge was superficial. And so that was when I did indeed go to New York. And for two years I studied at the Cunningham studio. I had become enthralled by Merce because I found his work, especially at that time, uh, Sue and I went to the south of France in 1970 and saw the company really extraordinary dancers and um, so I knew I really wanted to go and work with him to go and study with him and so going to New York in 1975 was an absolutely extraordinary time all sorts of things were developing all sorts of things were changing the range of dance in that city then was quite phenomenal there's good things in New York now, but there's not so much money. It's the same all over the world. So uh, um, the whole system that was very good for supporting dance at all sorts of levels has sort of disintegrated now. And so it's only the kind of brave and tough who, who manage to keep going, and they're terrific. Um, but at that time, dance was everywhere. I remember thinking when I was crossing a street, meeting a dancer from one of the studios where I took class, thinking good heavens this is a city where to be a dancer is a normal profession you meet so many dancers and you see them on the subway and you see them working in restaurants which we all did a lot Um, and 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 dance was part of the fabric of New York City and and uh, so that people who were dancers were proud of it Uh, um, I don't I'm not saying that London was ashamed of it but they just didn't know quite what was going on it's taken a long time for dance to 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 find a place that is now more welcome than it was at that time. But in New York, it was amazing. And uh, the range of work that I could see was extraordinary. So I saw really wonderful performances by Trisha Brown. Uh, I I, um, cured my homesickness by going to see Ashton Ballets done by the Joffrey. Uh, I had a very good friend who used to take me up to try and educate me to like New York City Ballet which I eventually did loved it but not at first isn't that weird but there you are Um, I saw all sorts of things I saw the most extraordinary things and then at a certain point I realised that I missed I had family to come back to and I missed my home and I missed a history that went further back than 1600 isn't that weird but I really did I well, there wasn't much from 1600s, certainly not around New York. Uh, it was more, much more likely the 1700s. And I can remember when I was studying, I made my living by cleaning apartments, which was quite easy to do. Uh, uh, you, you took X amount of hours, you got X amount of dollars, and then you can get on with your life. And once I went to a house, the young couple said with great enthusiasm, Oh, we're so lucky to live in such an old house. We love it. It's 1888, you know. And I thought, oh, for heaven's sake! That's not <laughs> <long>. <laughs> so I came back here. I came back here for my own culture and for my family. And um, and uh, it, I had learned a lot. I worked really, really hard when I was there, and and so I'd learned a great deal. When I came back, I taught like a maniac. There was nobody. It's very hard to imagine now, but there was nobody in this country teaching Cunningham technique. And I had to run from pillar to post, teaching all over the place, but I loved it. It was great.
0: And when you think back to your time in New York and uh, as you say, in the Cunningham studio, uh, do you have any specific special memories of working in the studio or what was that like?
1: It's a beautiful studio. It still is. Now the Martha Graham Company lives and works there. It's the whole top floor of a building. So it's a very large space with a whole wall of windows either side. So it's light and spacious. Um, There could easily be 50 people in class without it feeling crowded. Murs used to kind of pad quietly out of his office at the back, which was covered, all concealed with potted plants, which he nourished and nurtured. He'd come through his plants and he'd pad along down the side of the space and then go to the middle. His classes were absolutely packed. He had such a charisma that everybody worked so hard. We were all dripping with sweat. We worked hard in the other classes, but we didn't tremble quite so much as we did in Mercy's classes. And uh, Merce, meanwhile, would give these extraordinary phrases. He gave the same warm-up every day, which was fine, that meant we could get, get familiar with it. Then he would get, give us these very complicated phrases. And only when we'd come across the floor, probably about, it felt like about 15 times, would he then stop people and tell people what it was that they hadn't quite understood. And then he moved on. He didn't give you the chance to do, do it again. <laughs> it was quite a Zen way of teaching, but it was extraordinary. And he was, he was a really extraordinary, very, very quiet, understated, but extraordinary teacher and an extraordinary man to have known
0: and as a dancer what did it feel like in, at the sort of first moment where your body encountered his his technique and his work and those exercises what did it feel like for you uh
1: supremely comfortable after graham graham was very hard for me to do i love the graham language and i and it still influences me because it's a, the sensations in the graham technique are very strong and i can still feel them but i couldn't you know, you're supposed to sit in what is called a second position on the floor. I kind of sat behind my legs. I couldn't get my pelvis up on the top. I, was, I, was not, I didn't have the facility. So it was painful and it was hard and I knew that I wasn't very good at it. Didn't mean I didn't love it but I was struggling. Uh, and A remarkable teacher arrived called Viola Farber, a really wonderful, wonderful dancer. She came to London and she taught classes. And she said, all right, you don't have to sit on the floor. I start standing up. And uh, it was like opening a door. It was like opening a door to a great sunlit space because suddenly I could move without the kind of inadequacy and agony that I had suffered. Um, So Mercy's work really suited me. Mercy has a long body. I have a long body. he, he, he changed things from the Graham work because it hurt his back and uh, he invented new ways, very much connected to both classical ballet and, and Graham. So it's a very logical technique.
0: I want to uh, go back to this moment where your first decision to start your own company, it's quite an ambitious uh, um, enterprise today and you mentioned that the, the environment was quite different back then in terms of dance here in this country. What inspired you to form your own company so early on?
1: You're talking about Strider? Strider. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, the simple answer is that Robin was an extraordinary man of great vision but, but because he had, as it were, a damaged physique, he, he did not have legs, he knew that what to a normal person, to a complete person, would just be a cold, would be a very serious virus for him. And so he did not expect to live uh, as long as he actually did. The reason why I'm telling you that is because at one point we had a talk, we had often talked together, he was wonderful to me, and we had a talk and I said to him, Robin, I don't understand why you're in such a rush. Everything's just starting. It takes time for things to evolve and suddenly you want to be touring and you want to be doing this and, he, and that's when he said to me well that's because i really don't know whether i'll be here next week richard so i need to establish something that will survive and so i therefore have to uh, vindicate uh, what we're doing with the establishment and to that to that in extent he very cleverly uh, uh, encouraged the support of ninette de valois and Rombert, Rombert, was very encouraging to him, Madame Rombert. So he said, so when we're touring, we need to reach an audience and we need to look for a sort of middle of the road audience because we need to actually financially um, um, uh, survive. I guess I was 20 or something and, and I was very honest with him and said, well, as an artist just starting out and as a young man of 20, I don't really want to reach a middle-of-the-road audience. I'm, 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 I, I want to do all sorts of things. I don't know what it is I want to do, but it's not that. So I think I'm going to find a way of uh, uh, getting a small group of people like-minded and, and we'll become independent and we'll leave the place. Robin was wonderful about it. He was obviously disappointed in certain ways. He's, he seemed to think that I would have a future here but he also said to Robert Cohan, the, direct, the artistic director, he said, Well, the first person who we believe in is leaving, and that's a huge step forward for us. We've nurtured someone, and now they're moving on. It's like having a family, and, and the offspring are leaving, and, and we should uh, be slightly disappointed, but also very, very glad. So he was wonderfully supportive. And uh, with Strider, we did all sorts of things. Um, it was a very exciting time looking back I would say we didn't really know what we were doing and luckily the Arts Council didn't check up that much in those days um, but we did all sorts of interesting things and we got to a point where we really knew that we needed to actually bolster our knowledge we needed to have more knowledge and that's why I went to not only I but also another dancer too. we both went to New York
0: and strider evolved uh, when you came back, is that right?
1: And, and became Strata Two? Uh Second Stride. Second Stride. Yes. Oh, that was just the name. I was astonished when they called it that. I think we, were, there was a group that uh, uh, Siobhan Davis and Ian Spink, who was a very interesting Australian choreographer, they were starting it and Sue asked if I would be involved. And uh, um, I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And we were having meetings about it and they were talking about all sorts of names. One, one person was suggesting they called it Movable Feast. There were all sorts of jokes, and, and I said, well, you know, I suppose you could always call it Second Stride, ha, ha, ha. And then I went off, and I went off, and I was working abroad, and I got an email, or it wasn't even an email, there would have been a fax or something saying, so we've decided to call the, this group Second Stride. I was astounded. And in fact, by the time Second Stride started, I had been offered a, a position with Rambert so I didn't, I wasn't really involved in Second Stride.
0: So you get this offer from Rombert. Yes. What, what was going through your mind at that stage?
1: Um, as I said, I'd been teaching a lot. I had put on uh, performances at Riverside Studios, which was a wonderful space. I had become very good friends with Val Bourne. Uh, and we, for instance, were in the first night of the first Dance Umbrella Festival. And Val started thinking about whether Dance Umbrella could could uh, evolve into some kind of management. And I was one of the artists she asked if I would be interested. So she sent someone to talk to me about what I would need from a management and what I dreamt of. And I spoke to this person and I said, well, I'd really like a group of dancers that I can work with consistently. I'm very, very interested in trying to have live music. And uh, these are really major things. And so the answer from this advisor was, well, you better join someone like Romba then, hadn't you? Because it's not gonna happen, isn't it? And this was in uh, 1980. And uh, I was astonished. And it happened that, that at that, more or less the same moment, uh, uh, Christopher Bruce and John Chesworth from Rombe had come to Riverside and they, and they got me in the bar and said would you come and make a work for Rombe? So I did in 1980, 1979. And amongst the dancers was this very tall, very very young, 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 young Michael Clark. That's the first time we worked together. And um, in the course of making the work it seemed to me there was a period of transition going on because Christopher had left by the time I was there. And some of the dancers said, we really like doing this, you know, working with you, couldn't you be be here more, more permanently because Christopher's gone, so we don't have anyone creative in the company. And that's been what Rumper has always been about. And that's how this offer came through to be a resident choreographer. And I chose it because not only were the dancers really interesting because they had a lot of classical training in their background and I was very intrigued to explore that. But also they had this wonderful music ensemble and I thought, oh, I'll have some of that, please. There was the Mercury Ensemble, it was about 16 more musicians and it meant that from then on I could really begin to work with live music and that was a huge, uh, hugely attractive thing to me.
0: And what, what as a creator, having access to live music, how did that change what, the work that you were doing at the time?
1: Um, I had a wonderful music director there. He called himself Nicholas Carr in those days, and then he came here to the place and was music director for London Contemporary in its last era. And he changed his name to, I think, his mother's name, Nikol- Nicholas Moshenko, he was Russian in origin and he was fantastic he was really wonderfully supportive and if you had an idea for a dance he would know what sort of contemporary music would be an exciting possibility and uh, having said that he also was the one who arranged the andean folk music so that live musicians could play it here for christopher bruce's ghost dances uh, so he had a wide range of interests, and was passionate about music. So music was always a part of my choices of when I was going to make a dance. And in those days, of course, there was quite a strict musicians' union, so you couldn't use whatever you wanted. You had to, if there was music that could be played live, it had to be played live. Uh, I didn't mind that. I found that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, and and I, so I found it really interesting to keep looking for music and to meet composers and I I also developed relationships with the really marvelous marketing people (coughs) who are trying to sell the work of young young composers at Boosey and Hawks um, at uh, Universal Edition at at the different publishing houses so I've got to meet a lot of composers and uh, um, oh it was nothing but a pleasure you know, it was nothing but a pleasure to be working with live music and I, I began to learn how particularly concerned I was with phrasing and how I saw, saw that music, if you phrased dance not the same way as music, but if you phrased it in a way that understood music, that breathes with the music, uh, you could make quite complicated things and people could see it and understand it. Because they were listening and watching at the same time so i felt music was a real friend and it stayed that way until now forever
0: <laughs> and you've you created more than 25 works while you at the Ballet,
1: right by the way i should say that i know i've choreographed far too much you say i've choreographed about 150 pieces i probably have it's a long learning curve I know which pieces are special to me. I can look back now and say, oh, that was an interesting moment and that really meant that. And the work recently, I feel I now know what it is I'm trying to do and so I can push it further. But um, but, uh, uh, it was all a great way of learning and I did not and still do not expect them all to be around forever by any means.
0: So, with that in mind is there a piece from that period that does speak to you as a a piece that you feel is really important to you
1: all right that's interesting that's a very interesting question um there certainly were pieces from my time with rombert uh one of them was wildlife which had a score by uh nigel osborne and wonderful set by richard smith marvellous artist who did these kites. He did them very often for large gallery spaces, but he did these for the stage so they could move. Uh, and, and the music uh, uh, was based on all sorts of cultures all around the world. And um, it, it elicited quite a new movement language from me. So I've always thought that piece was very important to me. Uh, the pieces I made for Michael Clark were very special, because he was very special. So uh, I made a piece called Rainbow Ripples, where he was one of the leading dancers, and and, and we still, um, Kate Price, who was in Rombay at the time, now teaches here in the school here, so she teaches that in repertory class. Um, and other pieces, uh, I made a piece called Rough Cut, two Steve Reich pieces for for clarinet and for guitar. We've done that a lot. It's still done. Uh, and one of the marvellous things about that was that we got to do that in the Paris Opera. Um, at the time of of, of the uh, war, the Gulf War, uh, um, suddenly the Martha Graham Company said they couldn't fly across the Atlantic because they thought it was too high risk. Uh, I think they had quite a hazy idea of where the Gulf was. They thought it was somewhere in Europe. So they wouldn't come to, to an engagement at the Paris Opera. And we were touring in France at the time, way down in the south of France, near Biarritz. And I got this telephone call in the hotel. Someone saying, I wonder if you could possibly help us. We need someone to fill these dates. They've sold out houses for four performances by the Martha Graham Company. And I tried not to kind of shriek. I I said, oh, well, of course, I'll have to think about it. And and, we will do our best to help you. I will ring you later. Then I jumped into the street and stood screaming. <laughs> I was so excited. So we, did, we went there and we did a rough cut there on this, on this enormous stage. And with rough cut, we opened the space out totally. We never had wings or anything. And they had this 60 foot cyclorama at the back of the stage. The stage was so huge. And we have a video of it, which I love. You see these tiny figures flying around. So there were always very special performances uh, wonderful performances travelling abroad with Rombert in particular
0: What inspired you to come back home?
1: They asked me <laughs> They asked me, I wasn't quite certain what I was going to do after Rombert and so um, I thought to myself alright, well the best thing to do is to when the, when the telephone goes, says yes, say yes because I'd very much concentrated on working with Rombert So that's how I got to work uh, with Shobana Ajay Singh. I got to work in Turkey with a company there. And then when I was in Turkey, they rang me and said, would you come and be artistic director of the place? And would you, would you turn, what is London Contemporary Dance Theatre into your own company? And uh, so I came back and and talked to them and and it seemed like they really wanted me. So I said, yes.
0: And so that's where the Richard Alston Dance Company Started. started yes, which is more than twenty-five years ago. Yes. What was what was it like having your own company in this institution back in those days? Um, as you've already sort of gone a part little way into your career. Yes. You've spent more than I think it was over twelve years with Romberg. Yes. You've yes. been around the world. Yes. As you've mentioned you've you've created works in for other companies and you've traveled and performed across the world. What did it feel like having your own home and building your own company?
1: Well, I can remember in the first week that I was here working in the studio on a duet which was going well and thinking I'd really like to to push a bit further with this and get to the end of the duet. And it's suddenly dawning on me that there was no one else waiting outside, that this was my company. Because one of the joys of Rombert, but also one of the pressures, was the joy was looking after other choreographers' work. The pressure was that then very often, especially as artistic director, you gave yourself the last slot in the day, you let them have the best dancers, etc., etc. So when I went into this studio next door, we're in, in a room right next door to what's been my studio for 25 years. I thought, I'm not keeping anyone waiting. I could work all day on this. And it was the most wonderful freedom. And when I started, I gave myself time to make something and then maybe throw it completely out and start again. And because I had that time, I never did. It somehow liberated something in me. I, I had a wonderful time at Rombé, but it became very tiring. Became very tiring, uh, dealing with all the fundraising, dealing with all the uh, other sides of of an institution which an institution with a long history. I was fascinated by it. I loved the history. I once went there to a gathering for someone who was leaving uh, a couple of years after I'd left. And I walked into the room where they were having the party and I looked around and I thought, you know, it's probably a fact that I know more people in this room than any other human being because I, I, I knew dancers right back to the beginning because I'd been really interested in them. And we had revived early Ashton pieces and I'd asked for advice. We did Tudors, Dark Elegies, and, and, and I had a very strong sense of the company's history. And then I had known the romba that I first saw, the Janetta Cochrane in 66 and after that. And then I joined in 1980 and so I'd known all, all the dancers after that. So, I, I, I felt I was very much part of the family there. But, having said that, I've never lost that sense. But, but it, I was a guest in the family, if you like. And here, this is, this is my family. This building is my family, is my home. So, that was a very, very nice thing about being asked to come back.
0: And when you set out on this journey with your own company, did you have a specific vision in mind about what you wanted to create or who you wanted your company to be? Of course, it's your your namesake.
1: Yes. Um, my work at Rombert was considered by some to be rather uh, cerebral and elitist. I don't feel that way about it, but still. Uh, um, Rombert felt they had to try and, and attract larger audiences and so they went for a different kind of work and so when I came here I thought I'd really like to prove them wrong I'd really like to actually make work which I love but which also an audience wants so that was part of my vision for this company and at Rombert there had been the resources to work with design to work with painters and sculptors which I did quite a lot and here I thought, okay, I'm going to concentrate on the heart of the matter. That's music and movement, because uh, I had a very good budget, but it was much less than Rombert and much less than none the contemporary had been. And so I've explored that uh, for 25 years and found, had a wonderful time doing it. And. Um, use a wide range of music, because luckily I love a wide range of music. And uh, it's always the music that dictates whatever, music, whatever movement language will suddenly appear to be the, the right thing. It comes out of listening to the music. So that some of my work is very different from others. Uh, but um, I certainly know now in the last five years or, or so, I have a I have a sense of, put it very crudely, knowing what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing now. Uh, I don't settle and say, well, I know what I'm doing, so that's fine. I'm still trying to do things that are new, I'm still trying to put myself in situations that I haven't been in before, um, but I'm able to push the work more and to be more to take more effort to make sure that every part of the dance is as good as it could be. That's the, that's the, that's the best way I can put it.
0: And tell me about your process for creating work in, in the studio, as you mentioned the musicality, but also the variety of, of dance Yes. and the variety of the movement language. What is it like creating? Tell me how that
1: works. I create very fast, I create very fast and I go back and look at it and look at it and look at it and that's one reason why I go on tour with the company, I've been on tour with this company for 25 years because I can see things on stages and I can see things on different stages and realize how something might work better and I am dedicated to making sure that I don't shortcut any possibilities to make the work better. So I drive dancers mad sometimes by changing things on stage before the opening night and after the opening night. Um, when I make work, i mean i I am absolutely inspired by the dancers. They need to be wonderfully physically talented and people who are attractive and 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 and, and i'm're symp- sympathetic. I'm not a choreographer, I'm not an artist who works well on tension. I don't construct uh, confrontational situations, I freeze. So I keep good-humoured, I make lots of jokes, and everything flows, that's the way it has to be. Um, I've said very clearly that I prepare the music hugely so that I know exactly what it is I love about the music. I never. Um, prepare movement never it, it happens in the studio and it comes out of somewhere and suddenly one thing leads to another and oh there it goes um, I am I, um, I think of myself as drawing in space drawing with energy I sometimes talk to audiences about saying imagine you're, you're a, a, a young person going out into the garden with a sparkler and you light it and that all that all that flashing light you can make shapes in the air or some uh, wonderful films of picasso painting on glass i think i'm making lines and making shapes making sculptural shapes i love dance to be very three-dimensional um, and then of course there's the whole thing with music with phrasing uh with with large movement with small linking steps which, which means that dance is phrased just the way speaking is phrased, just the way writing is phrased. You just don't have nothing but big words. You have lesser ones, which are just as important, but they link from one to the other. So that's all those things. All those things go into making a dance for me.
0: And what's it like having your own dance family in a way? You mentioned the, uh, some of the qualities that you look for in the dancers to join your company your family yes what does it feel like having these
1: dancers I'll tell you what what feels wonderful you know I've been working here for 25 years and I've been working before that for 50 years in all Uh, it's absolutely wonderful to see people who've been in class who studied with me who have danced my work going somewhere else and doing really well and I just smile to myself and think well that was worth being patient with that person and no wonder I loved her dancing because look at her now and and uh it, it's a it's really it's one of the i have to share with you it's one of the joys of getting older <laughs> if you stick at something you have a past you have you said it's a it's like a family it's like children and grandchildren you know and they're all over the dance world now and um And they're very, very generous to me. They come back and say, we had a great time here and you were wonderful to us. They're very open about it, so that's... You can imagine that makes me feel really rather good.
0: And how do you... 25 years is a long time, and it's only part of your career, as you've mentioned, which is growing on more than five decades and not ending, as it it must not at this point. how, how do you maintain that um, constant inspiration for, for difference and keep your work alive and you know, create the new over such a long period of your career?
1: The truthful answer is that I've never grown up. Uh, uh, I've never lost the excitement of going into the studio. I work a lot with young people now, with youth groups, because I was Chair of Youth Dance England, and and I've worked with the CAT scheme all over the country, and I find it absolutely thrilling. Um, I love working with dancers. I love being in the same room as dancers. I've always loved teaching. Teaching as a form of enabling, as a form of, a, of, of, of revealing to people what they perhaps thought they couldn't do. I think that's a really wonderful way of teaching. Uh, um, so, it's, teaching is run like a thread through all those 50 years. I have been almost constantly employed, but not always choreographing. There's been quite a lot of teaching, and luckily I love it. Um, But that's what it is. When I go into the studio now, I'm still excited to make a piece. I'm still excited to, I've just been in New York working with New York Theatre Ballet, where I now have two years as resident choreographer. So I'll make a new piece for them next year. Um, I'm discussing with Juilliard, which is a really wonderful school, and I made a piece, I gave them a piece about three years ago. And we're looking into whether I could go back there, and they've made me Nothing's, nothing's formulated yet, but they've been so welcoming. And it's such an exciting school. It's just full of the most amazing dancers. So suddenly, you know, we've just come back from New York, and in New York, I suddenly thought, okay, so I keep saying to yourself, there's a future. Actually, it's, it's, it's around you. It's, you know, people are asking you to do things. Um, and that still thrills me. I've been very, very lucky, there have been very, very few examples of working somewhere where I was unhappy, Uh, um, somehow I've avoided those places, you know, there are certain institutions across the world where you know the dances can be quite difficult or the management or what have you, I've, I've worked with wonderful, wonderful companies that have been very enthusiastic and responded very, very warmly. It has to be said that I am re- comparatively pleasant in the studio. Um, you know, there are, there are people who drive you and maybe inspire people by being rather mean. As far as I'm concerned, any person, any young person who says, OK, I really want to be a dancer, well, they're on the side of the angels. They show something very special. And I'm very happy to be in the same room and, and, and really, really happy to make steps for them.
0: And dancers have evolved physically um, over the last 50 years. Today's dancers look very different and, and come out of dance schools so very sophisticated and accomplished. You mentioned in being inspired by the dancers in the creation of your work. How does today's dancers spark a different type of response from you in the way that perhaps the, the bodies of the dancers did previously? Or
1: does it? Well, i tell you what's changed. i tell you what's changed. Uh, uh, barriers have been broken. Barriers have been beaten down. Uh, when I started, the world of ballet was quite self-contained and uh, they looked slightly askance at these people called contemporary dancers. And, and now that's simply not true, which is really rather wonderful. So in a strange way, What's happening in this building has changed a lot. What Robin wanted to bring to this building is now all over the country in both ballet schools and in the Royal Ballet with Wayne McGregor uh, choreographing there, and the whole openness of the whole, uh, the, there are not so many barriers in the world of dance. So, training now has to embrace a wider set of skills and then just as importantly training in dance institutions now has much more knowledge about fitness and about injury prevention. All those things absolutely fascinate me. So I find all those developments really, really marvellous. And so when you get a big company like the Royal Ballet, you know, the people who treat them when they're injured are are as important as their teachers, are as important as their choreographers. And and, uh, there's a a sense of that. There's a sense of people being cared for, not pushed beyond what they should do if something is wrong. Um, I find all that really terrific. You know, I've been around long enough to remember when the sports doctors, the the Olympic doctors, suddenly realized that what they were applying to athletes could very interestingly be applied to dancers. And they suddenly realized this was a new era, era, area for them. And they embraced it, and they went for it, and they gave us lots of advice. Not Not all of it we took. Because when you're looking for an athlete, you're looking for the perfect physique for the long jumper, the perfect physique for the high jump, the perfect physique for short, sharp sprints, the perfect physique for marathons. And of course, choreographers turn around and say, well, it's the imperfect physique that I love. And, and actually, you've just got to accept that, you know. So it's a very interesting, a very, very interesting area, but, but it has enriched the world of dance, I think, hugely.
0: And looking at your company, it's quite a diverse company as well, um, which is part of this evolution. Yes, absolutely. Yes,
1: and quite right too. Yes, I I want want my company to be, I don't want people to be all the same size, I don't want them to all be the same Uh, uh, colour. I I find the the, uh, image, if you like, of dance, Breaking down barriers and breaking down prejudices, I know it can do that and I found that hugely exciting. When I was at Romba someone said to me, someone who I respected said, Richard, as the director of uh, an institution which is funded and so on, do you think it's acceptable to have uh, such a high proportion of white dancers? And I'd never thought about it really and I've thought about it ever since. I, 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 um, I make no compromises, I don't have to, because actually there are all sorts of wonderful, wonderful dancers with extremely wonderful gifts who come from all sorts of backgrounds. And, and I... I um, but I, if, if it looks like at one moment there's going to be less diversity, I give it a push. I will make sure that time I will really try and see someone who would actually help the company still. You know, um, uh, I spoke to someone who who came from uh, Jamaica not so long ago, and they said, well, for us, you can go into a building and feel you don't belong. You can just see that there aren't other people like you. That was a very simple way of putting it, but I think a very important way of putting it. and uh, you know, I've seen so many. I've seen so many companies get beyond, get beyond the notion that all swans should be white.
0: And uh, going back to your 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 role as an educator and as a teacher for dancers, for young dancers to be able to see themselves on stage, and for those dancers of all backgrounds to be able to. Say, so, oh, there's someone on stage that yes. looks like me. Yes, yes, absolutely. I could be that yes,
1: yes, it's it's hugely important. Uh, um, I know, I know that the dancers in my company who come from uh, um, diverse backgrounds, they are very often they're really important role models. They're very important role models, and that that's been going on. For instance, you know, all the way back to Arthur Mitchell at New York City Ballet in the fifties. Balanchine was ahead of his time. Martha Graham had a very diverse company. Uh, um, it, it's important, it's important, and, it, and it, it, it's, the arts should be racist free. They really, really should be. And, and you know, we are a community where we do what we love and we are tolerant of all sorts of things, all sorts of people, all sorts of things we should embrace. Uh, and we're doing what we love, so we have no excuse not to, you know, that's what that's what binds us all together. because and then
0: you end up with these, this diverse range of dancers who give you this diverse range of inspiration. Yes, yes. And become yes. Your, your tools for yes. your, your yes.
1: craft. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Well, you know, I uh, um, I like thinking of people as different.
0: Uh, We're all unique.
1: Yeah, I just each person, each person in my company has a personality or or some something in their background that interests me. It's not just their dancing, it's not just their legs and feet and things, uh, and that's that's been a, been in my mind for a long time. Uh, I feel that uh, dance. I feel dance is a is a Hugely healing activity. I absolutely believe in that. I think it actually uh, makes people happier. And um, when I started out, teaching could be quite strict. And if if someone said to you, you see, dance should make people happy, you think, well, that teacher doesn't seem to think that. (laughs) But now we live in a totally different era, education is totally different and, and, uh, and the sensibility about dance is totally different and yet people are still achieving the most extraordinary things so it's not like it's made a compromise in any way.
0: Speaking of extraordinary, again when you look back over this, um, this period with your company, what has been some of the, the greatest moments for you? If you could choose one or two that stand out for you, yes,
1: that's interesting. I've enjoyed it all. It's been, you know, so it's not it's not as easy to. No,
0: it's I
1: guess one. I guess when we first went to New York, that was very exciting. When we went to the Joyce, uh, the first visit we went to the Joyce, and then we did a big tour of America of six weeks, and that was very exciting. Um, so and I think also we we started out in quite small theatres and then we began to uh, take the challenge of being on larger stages we've been to the Edinburgh Festival Theatre the Lowry um, theatres are quite some size and, and the work looks wonderful because they move around so much even if there's only a few of them on stage they zoom about so it's rather like that performance in Paris I was talking about with Ron It's the same thing with my company. Um, and it's always rather wonderful when, well, I'll tell you something which I loved doing, which was like, just 2013 was the Britain centenary, and we did a whole program to his music, and his music was part of my growing up, so I feel very connected to it. And we did a program at the Barbican, which was all Britain, with wonderful musicians. So that was a really marvellous evening and a marvellous... We did several evenings, but... I love doing that. Um, and there have been also a succession of wonderful companies, because dancers do come and go, but sometimes they all gel in a particularly good way, and then they stick together for longer. And so we've had a company until quite recently that more or less was together for eight years, and... Um, that became like a family that really knew each other, and they knew what I wanted. Um, So those were really important times to me with this company.
0: What have been some of the greatest challenges?
1: We've always been very well behaved and stayed within budget. We haven't run up huge deficits or anything. Um, I think partly because of that, uh, we haven't expanded or formed a second company or do the kind of things which which are seen today as progress. Uh, I don't know how long-lived progress that would be, but... but uh, um, So the challenge was, we, we've, we've had amazing support from the Arts Council uh, when we first started, uh, and really up until about four or five years ago, where a kind of new regime came in, and they seemed to be ticking boxes. And they even reinvented boxes, which we didn't fit into. And from then on, they just asked me what I thought were the wrong questions all the time. Uh, They never criticized the work, but they wanted it to fit this or fit that. And they wanted there to be matching funds, which is difficult in an organization where they're also finding funds for the school. So that's been a challenge, and and a challenge where eventually I thought, okay, this is a challenge too far. Uh, I don't want to continue this company on a lesser level than what we've achieved. And I believe, as I said earlier, I believe in continuity, I believe in people growing slowly over time. And in fact, if they work consistently, they grow very fast over time. It's not really, it wouldn't be my choice to do projects that are very short-lived and then you lose touch with people and then eventually the other one is, I haven't had to do it since... Well, even Strider was consistent, you know. So I've been working with, with, with ongoing consistency since 1972. And that's when Strider first started. And, you know, old dog, new tricks, you fill in the rest.
0: And as you mentioned before, you don't like to compromise on the
1: No, 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 no. I'll tell you something, uh, uh, I think I have, I think I have, I think my, my family taught me to have an appropriate sense of humility, I think that's no bad thing, um, but I'm also absolutely fierce about what I really believe in, which is integrity. I will not compromise my integrity. So I will not do something because it's fashionable. I will not do something because it would increase our funding if that's the only reason that I would do it. I'm quite stubborn. Uh, I'm very stubborn, is the truth. But I believe, I love what I do and I believe in it. And, and it, I, I don't think I'm nostalgic. I think that the values of dance that I believe in are timeless and uh, um, and I think I'm dealing with the things in dance that will be there forever.
0: Uh, and those values for you, what is the most important? Uh,
1: um, well, uh, dancers, dancers can be, uh, if you like, a metaphor for 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 really tolerant and considerate human beings dance companies can work really well together dancing even on a social level is a hugely healing thing uh um so i believe in the in the in the good power of dance i'm beginning to sound like a vicar but uh, i i i do i really do believe that dance can really help people and also all sorts of ways. So that's that's why I'm still in it. You know, if I feel I'm still helping people, if young people, you know, young people come up to me in the theatre now when we're on tour and they say, "Oh, Mr. Rossen, we're studying you. Oh, you know, can we have a picture? Can we have an Instagram or whatever?" Well, you know, they can't do that with Shakespeare. So why not do it with me? I mean, they often have you know, in school. They'll be studying Shakespeare, and then they choose to take dance A level or GCSE. Uh, so I try to be helpful. And, uh, uh, and, and that very huge very family of people who, are, who, who express warmth towards me, it's an, it's an important part of my happiness. Yeah.
0: But after 26 years, the Richard Alston Dance Company is coming to an end, sadly. And this is due to funding, as you mentioned. Uh, how, you, how do you feel about this, this ending, or this, the way in which we are ending, or you are ending this company at this time?
1: I have very odd. I have very odd opinions, and one of my opinions is that anger is rather a waste of energy. I I don't enjoy it. Uh, there are angry artists. There are artists that cry out against society. I like to make dance about what's good about dance, and what's good about human beings. Um, and and so there's a sense in a way that everything has its time, and 25 years is a long time, uh, and, uh, um, and I'm really hoping that I find new ways to work. So selfishly that's all very exciting. Um, Right now, it is quite hard doing the last tour because audiences are incredibly sweet, but they kind of queue up to tell me that they've been seeing my work since Strider and, you know, how much they love it and how special it is and what are they going to do when i stop? stopped, and it's quite painful. It's wonderful, of course, but it's also quite painful. Um, And uh, I'm ready to move on now. I'm ready to move on. I'm still absolutely committed to this group of dancers. Here we are. We have two weeks, just two weeks. Uh, Less than two weeks, actually. Where are we now? This is Thursday. We have one more week after this. Um, But already, I know there are things in the the pipeline. There are irons in the fire. There are people asking me to do things. And I know the dancers will get work. I know they will. So I, it's very important to me not to get down. It's very important to me to think, OK, you're doing what you love. You've been doing it for a long time. You've been allowed to do it for for, for, for a long time. And there are people who seem to like what you do. So uh, get on with it. Get on with it. Reach new people. Work with new companies. Uh, um, find different ways of doing things. Uh, Work abroad more because I've really you know, been touring in this country a lot, which I love. But it's, 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 uh, I, I've come to terms with it. I've come to terms with it. It was, a, it was an agonizing decision. I, I made it two years ago. I had two years to get used to it. Uh, so, but it's gone beyond distress now. I'm not distressed. I've accepted it. I feel I've been very good, a wonderful support by many, many people. And uh, if I'm selling the big issue in a couple of years' time, <laughs> I will be proved wrong. It's <laughs> <laughs> never going to happen, my goodness.
0: Uh, we, we, we reminisced about your, the first day of entering this, this building, and you're coming back. How do you feel, or how do you think you'll feel on that last day? in a week's time, when you exit the building?
1: Well, I I just absolutely recently realized that there will be a sense of liberation. There will be a sense. I I was sitting at home this morning thinking, in a week's time, you could stay in here all day if you want. Or you can be a sunny day, or you can go to an exhibition, or you can do this, or you can do that. Uh, um, I have. I'm fascinated by all the arts, always have been. So it's not like without a dance class to teach, I'm going to be miserable. Um, I'm really hoping that I can keep working in dance, and I just I'm putting that out, uh, no, I put it out there very loudly and see if who responds. Uh, it was very encouraging being in New York because they 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 love to make. They love to make people feel important if they if they think they're important. And they tell me I'm important and I believe them, which was wonderful. But but I do know that actually once we've got through it, if the Sad as Wells programmes go as well as the rest of this spring tour has gone, I will know that we have finished in a good way. And that will be a huge achievement. Uh, and and um, I, I, I will be so relieved by that and so pleased that we managed to do it and I was thinking now what? How exciting, I wonder what's going to happen.
0: So let's talk about the program coming up at Saddlers Wells, um, the final edition. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you selected the works for this program.
1: Um, I selected by and large pieces which we haven't done at Saddlers Wells before. There is one piece which we have done there before, Mazur. Um, and uh, there's a new piece by Martin because he's been a very important part of the company. Uh, there's a new piece by me that I made to Britain uh, for, for, the, for the snake maltings. I mean that was, when you say about happy times, that was also to work, to dance in the snake maltings in all it's wonderful. And we've been there four times really extraordinary building Um, and uh, I've I've included that in the program I've brought back a a duet for two men to Chopin because I thought two men in the company now would do it really well and I was amazed how right I was they did it even better than I expected so I'm really pleased to be showing that in London Um, I've made this Monteverdi piece which I'm very proud of I like it I think I'm very pleased with it We haven't shown that in London, so that's how the program will end. And I've got a short piece for students from here, because I made it for our last performances here. And, you know, I like a sense of continuity, so I I trained here. I graduated, well, I finished anyway in 1970, and now I'm working with the the young people who are going to finish in 2020. And... uh, I've made a short piece for them and it's gone really well so that's been, that's part of the program too. So there's a lot of people dancing really well, that's what I've what I've tried to say, tried to choose. Okay, let's show up a, a, pro, a, a program where everybody's dancing wonderfully.
0: And not to preempt a week's time, um, but And you've mentioned the audience that have come up to you and shared their experiences and their views and the dancers. Is there, by return, something that you would like to say to your audience who have followed you for the last 25 plus?
1: Well I I keep saying it. I keep saying it. I say it when I talk to audiences and I've said it in the program. I'm hugely grateful to them. Hugely grateful. There are things about my work which are not fashionable, but they are actually in some strange way very much needed. In a time when the world is becoming very cynical, I think dance can be beautiful. I think people dancing are beautiful, and I have absolutely no problem with attempting to make something that's beautiful, and audiences respond to that. so they very often come up to me and say how moved they are by my work or how incredible. Uh, uh, um, uh, someone in America came up to me because that was the last time we were in America and they said, your, your, your dancers are so wonderful and your work is so beautiful and we don't have that anymore. And uh, they should. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It might be...
0: A little strange to to think like this but you are the living legacy um, you mentioned Shakespeare <laughs> but you know, as a as a essentially a living legacy where as you mentioned you know, students are studying you yes you've got this thriving future that you you're talking about and you've already got the choreographic res- residency with a New York Thea- Theatre Ballet You mentioned earlier, as well, about this belief in the mature artists and in the mature works. Yes. Um, And I'm really interested to to discuss that more, because um, the dance and dance industry is often considered a young person's pursuit. Um, So it's great to hear that you're not at the age of 70, as you mentioned, just going to stop creating work.
1: I certainly won't, if I unless I absolutely have to, unless you know nothing comes, nothing comes to the door. Uh, um, but the choreographers that have been hugely important to me have kept going, and uh, uh, and their work has has flowered in later, you know, much older than than 70. Um, although I mentioned uh, Trisha Brown, who I really was very fond of and think her work is wonderful she did stop at 17 because she was Ill, it was an illness and she had to stop um and and i i was very very upset uh, no playwright would stop when they were 17 no author would stop when they're 17 no painter would stop when they're 70 unless they unless for some reason they have to you know there's some illness or something um and you're right there isn't Outside of big institutions, you know, Frederick Ashton could continue choreographing, although he was sort of given the, you know, shown the door when he was about 70. Uh, uh, Balanchine hadn't even made jewels when he was 70. He hadn't even made the last whole era era of his work. So uh, I look at these people and I think, okay, as long as people will lift their leg when I ask them to lift their leg and as long as we do it with the music and whatever I, I, I won't be doing it unless I think you know if I think at one point oh no this works not this isn't as good as the work used to be then I think I'll you know probably ask Martin who's a good good colleague just let me know will you when it suddenly looks all rather rather hackneyed and un, 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 inventive um, but I don't feel that at the moment I feel that the the last works, almost in defiance of the Arts Council, the last works I've made for this company have been some of my best. And uh, I would love to take that energy on.
0: And your audiences would very much love for you to continue to create works, and you've already created work for a number of other companies throughout your career. Um, And just my final question, over these 50 years and at this juncture where it's a whole new exciting future ahead of for you as an artist, as a a human, as a creator do you feel at this point that you have achieved what you could have hoped to have achieved in in your career?
1: I'm not certain I'm not certain, there's something very I mean at the moment what we're doing is uh, all these videos in boxes and whatever and we have to have them uh, digitized as they say and then we're talking with places where they will actually store them as a collection so that people will be able to say I want to see this dance by Richard Alston and they can Uh, and that's an important thing but of course it's not living it's lively on a video but still a video um, but otherwise, I think, um, I will just see where my work goes, where where it's able to go. Uh, if nothing else, you know, apart from the young people who I um, really have very warm feelings for, uh, if they're studying my work, I'm thrilled. But actually, just as are their teachers are fantastic. And the teachers, especially in this country, um, when, when dance has been elbowed out of the main curriculum and it could easily just have disappeared, but no, it hasn't because they work after school hours with people who volunteer. And that's what I see every, every year when I go to U dance, which is the big meeting for all of that, organized by what used to be Dance uh, Youth Dance England, but now it's uh, Dance UK, One Dance UK. So I see young people still, getting somewhere starting out doing things and I see people dancing in spite of the fact that actually there's not so much to encourage them I think I'm very 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 lucky that I started out in a very optimistic era in 1968 England was quite an optimistic country young people assumed they were to get a job young people did not assume they would not get a job which is widely true now in those days, for instance, I went to art college and everyone thought you went to art college, you No, know, for all sorts of reasons. And then in some way you would get something, there would be some way of you working involved in what you were doing. And if you didn't, it didn't matter because the whole thing of an art college was that it was an education, it, it uh, um, widened your vision, it inspired you to live in a different way or whatever. So it was a very, you know, London at that time was very optimistic, trendy, uh, but, but full of possibilities. And uh, and so what I really love about dance is that people are still making dances. People are still starting out to make dances in spite of the fact that that optimism in society has shriveled. I won't say it's died, but it's shriveled. And uh, uh, politicians are much less caring than they used to be. But people who need to dance do it. They get on and do it. And that, I think, is the wonderful and extraordinary power of art.
0: And what words of advice would you pass on to this younger generation who are out there trying to pursue this endeavor? Yes, yes.
1: Uh, Do what you believe in. Do what you believe in. I taught myself to choreograph. Nobody taught me. Uh, I taught myself by going to see lots of work and thinking about what it is I liked and more and more beginning to understand what it is I liked and what I loved and what I needed to be in a dance and uh, um, I think nowadays there's so much information that you could pick up if you want to you know you can just go online or go to YouTube you can see so many things Um, so economically everything is much much harsher than, than it was but in 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 a very important way, if you get up, and you start jiggling your knees, there you are. You're dancing, and it's free. And so actually, yes, if you need if you need a very expensive studio with gorgeous mirrors and a sound system in the corner, or whatever, then you have to pay for it. But actually we haven't touched upon something which has evolved in my lifetime that, that did not exist in any way when i started out and that's street dance hip-hop Oh,
0: absolutely! and
1: that's been an amazing uh talk about barriers breaking down you know and a, a lot of young people come here now from east london dance they start with a lot of hip-hop and then they want to find a different way of using that and they come to a school like this and and uh Dance is dance is in everyone's life now in a way which it really wasn't in this country when I started, it really wasn't, and that's um, so now we're back to when I was when I, back to what I was saying when I went to New York and thought, good heavens, dance here is a normal profession, everybody moves now, young people all want to do they all they it's not just the movement they want the outfits they want the baggy clothes the, the baseball caps the whole thing, but still means they're moving and they're dancing, and so they still get that kind of uh, uh, wonderful exhilaration, the adrenaline. Uh, and I've seen um, large groups of, of hip hop groups, you know, being drilled, being drilled by by s- sergeant majors, you know, would be not be ashamed of seeing the way that I've seen people working and young people do it. They get on with it and they're, and they're, and they're really excited to be part of it. So, so dance has changed in all sorts of ways and, um, and it's part of our culture. It used to be rather an elitist part of our culture or funny old men doing Morris dancing, but now it's everywhere. It's on television, it's in our lives and that's, that's nothing but wonderful, that's great.
0: I just want to say thank you so much for taking so much of your time. If you're in London, you must, of course, come and see Richard Austin's the final edition, Farewell Performance at Sadler's Wells on the 7th and 8th of March. And if you're in Cambridge, you can see the Farewell Performance in a couple of days on the 2nd and 3rd of March. Check out the company's website for details and tickets, richardaustendance.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe. We've got some incredible interviews coming up with principal ballerinas and renowned choreographers. We love dance and ballet, and we hope you'll love us. Join us on Facebook and Twitter.